Hey, grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 9. No handout today, so you're going to have to uh, take a look at that Bible, as I hope you always do. Uh, if, you, if you don't know where Luke is, if you're new to Christianity and the Bible, you can turn to page 548 in your hymnal, and you will find the Gospel of Luke right there on page 548. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57, is where we will begin today. And it's very apropos of the song we just sung. Thank you, Estella. Um, Oftentimes our worship leaders do just a great job. Doug, Estella, Scott, Tom, others, uh, just coordinating the song selection with our text today. And this could not, that last song could not have been a better song to lead into this present uh, portion of the Gospel of Luke. Would you stand with me as we read from Luke 9, beginning in verse 57? Luke 9:57 to the end of the chapter. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him that is Jesus, "Lord, I will follow you wherever you go." And Jesus said to him, "Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head." Then Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Lord, we ask you to lead us through your word this morning. We ask your Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes. Enlighten our minds. Teach us today, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I am eternally indebted to the ladies uh, in the front office, Colleen and Jeannie, uh, because they shield me from a great deal of things during the week. Um, Those of you who work in an office setting know that those who answer the phone Uh, You want to stay in their good graces because you see they who answer the phone in in an office of a business or an organization or a church, those who answer the phone have great power because you see they can take that phone call and transfer it to whomever they wish. And if you're not in their good graces... Well, you just might receive a few, you know, telemarketing calls or sales calls or who knows what kind of call might come your way just because they thought it might be a good idea for you to chat with them. Well, you can imagine in a church setting, maybe you can't, but, but I'll, I'll enlighten you if you are not aware. Believe it or not, churches get a ton of telemarketing calls. I mean a ton. We get calls for office supplies, for, uh, you know, yellow page ads, as if people still advertise in the yellow pages. I don't know. We get calls for everything you could possibly imagine. Church curriculum, Sunday school curriculum, adult curriculum, children's curriculum. We get calls from missions organizations around the U.S. and around the world. We get Nigerian princes who want to send us hundreds of thousands of dollars to store in an account until they get here in the United States. We get those calls. And sometimes those emails, those are very strange emails. Don't respond to those emails. But Colleen and Jeannie in the front office of the church, they do a fantastic job of shielding me from unwanted calls in the office. Um, But oftentimes they, they send the call through. Usually when it's one of you, they send the call right through and they'll, Colleen will say, "Uh, Neil, I have such and such a member on line one. And I'll click line one and I'll pick up the phone. But you know, I've never had uh, Colleen say to me, Pastor Neil, um, I have the Lord on line one for you. She has never once said that to me. And yet, in our portion of the Gospel of Luke this morning, the Lord is on line one. The Lord is on line one. 
That's the title of this message. The Lord is on line one. He is calling. He's calling you and me right now through his word. And he's actually going to show us we're going to be a fly on a wall of his calls to three other individuals in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 today. He's calling on line one. And you and I, like a fly on a wall, are going to sit and listen in on how that call was handled in three small vignettes in Luke chapter 9. The first call. Well, actually, it's interestingly enough, in the first call, someone calls upon the Lord, but, but implicit in this is the Lord's call upon their life. Take a look at it. Take a look at verse 57. Now, it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go. Wow. That is an amazing statement. Look at that statement. Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Can you say that to Jesus? Are are you saying that to Jesus right now in your life? Would you say that to Jesus if... Jesus were to lead you toward difficult places. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus were to say to you, okay, come over here. Come over here to a place like Laura's house in San Juan Capistrano. A place that ministers to women and children who are victims of domestic violence. Come over here. Go to Laura's house. Come with me. Come with me to Camp Allendale where we minister to neglected and emotionally and physically and sometimes sexually abused foster care children. Come with me there. Would you still say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go if Jesus took you to difficult places far away from here? Not just Laura's house or Camp Allendale, but far, far away to places like uh, godless and communist China or North Korea, where naming the name of Christ can be a criminal offense. Would you, say, would you still say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go, if the Lord said, here, come, follow me. We're going to the territories of the Middle East that are overrun by Islamic terrorists. That's where I'm going. Follow me. I think that, um, I think that the Lord, were he here today, would be going to places like this. I think Jesus, were he here today on this earth, he would be going to places like Laura's house to see how they're ministering to women and children affected by domestic violence. I think Jesus would be taking the the walk up the mountain to Idlewild to see how Camp Allendale is doing and to serve and to minister there. I think that Jesus would be very interested in places like China and North Korea where atheism and communism rule. I think he takes a great interest in the areas in and around his birth in the Middle East and in places where There once was uh, a semblance of Christian communities, but now they are overrun by demonic forces. I think Jesus would go to these places. Don't you? So, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go can, uh, can quickly be recanted, can't it? It can quickly be be recanted when we learn where Jesus is going. Oh, you're going there. I don't want to go there. The man in Luke 9 thought he knew where Jesus was going. 
Luke doesn't mention it, but Matthew writes of this same story in Matthew chapter 8, and he indicates that the man who spoke these words to Jesus was none other than a Jewish scribe. In Matthew 8, he, he, uh, Matthew identifies the man as a scribe or a, a lawyer, an interpreter of the law in the first century Jewish society. This would have been a high-profile man in Jewish culture, um, a likely a man of influence, a man of means. He would have been known in the community. He would have been respected, highly regarded in the community. And in his pride, he supposed that he knew where Jesus was going. Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher. And this man held a similar kind of position in that day and age. And so he knew of the respect and the accolade that Jesus had in that role. And he saw that, that, even, that, that though he had already garnered some of that accolade himself, that Jesus had risen up even further, even higher in notoriety, in fame, and the man looked at Jesus and, and, and saw Jesus kind of like a few steps ahead of him and thought, hey, I can ride on this guy's coattails. I can ride on this man's coattails all the way up to fame, notoriety, maybe wealth. But Jesus, in his humility, he shunned the things that incentivizes mankind. He didn't welcome fame or notoriety. And as for wealth, well, Jesus was far from financially independent. He never earned one penny during his earthly ministry. He wasn't independent at all. He was actually a very dependent individual during his three-year ministry on earth. And he says as much in verse 58. Look at verse 58. This is what he says about his own experience. He says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, he has nowhere to lay his head. Even foxes and birds had more economic stability than Jesus of Nazareth. At least they had a permanent home. Foxes and birds. Each night Jesus wondered where he would put his head to rest on the pillow. Each night, for three years, Jesus wondered where he would lay down to rest and sleep. Where he would eat. Reminds me of a homeless person who wonders where they'll sleep tonight. Reminds me of a foster care child who wonders whether this or that foster care home will last for such and such a time because they switch so often. Reminds me of Christians in war-torn Nigeria and Iraq and Syria who wonder how long it will be before they have to run for their lives, leaving their homes, leaving everything they have behind them and run in fear. The vast majority of us, now here, here we are, what, South Orange County, one of the most affluent places in all of the United States. We live in one of the most rich, wealthy, well-to-do areas in all the world. That's where we live. It doesn't get much more rich than this place. The vast majority of us live in stability. Not all, but the vast majority of us. We at least know where our pillow is tonight. We at least know that we will eat and survive another day. But if we wish to go wherever Jesus is going, then perhaps it's time for us to humble ourselves and love and serve those who have nothing to speak of. Those who don't know where they're going to sleep. Those who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Perhaps even those who are persecuted and have lost everything. 
And so when we uh, espouse and lift up and elevate places like Laura's house and Camp Allendale and Haiti and and organizations that that are noteworthy and admirable like Samaritan's Purse or Voice of the Martyrs, I mean, my goodness, there are people that serve Voice of the Martyrs ministry who are right now at refugee camps in Iraq and in the surrounding regions ministering to people, many of whom are Christians but not all, people who have lost everything. That's why we lift up these um, opportunities before us. Because that's where Jesus is going. That's the life that he lived. Not knowing where he was going to sleep. Not knowing where he was going to eat. Persecuted. In hardship and trial. If we're not going there, then how are we answering the call? Of Jesus. Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Can you mean that? Or are there caveats to answering that call? The lawyer of verse 57 in Luke 9, he he made a rash and presumptuous vow, one that he could not fulfill. But now we come to another individual whom the Lord's going to call, whom the Lord's going to give an opportunity to. And let's see how he fares in comparison to the first one. Take a look at this second man. This, unlike the first man, is someone that Jesus seeks out. Take a look at verse 59. And then Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Okay, in the last encounter, in the previous story, the lawyer approached Jesus, right? This time Jesus is approaching someone else. He's calling this time. And he calls out to this man, whomever he is, we don't know. Matthew actually describes him as a disciple, by the way, which is an interesting term given what we're talking about, becoming a disciple of of God, of Christ. Matthew already identifies him as a disciple in Matthew 8. It says that Jesus said to one of his disciples, not one of the 12, mind you. Matthew would have indicated one of the 12. But Jesus is specifically speaking here in Luke 9, verse verse, uh, 59. Jesus is specifically speaking here to someone who has already been following him to a very good extent. And he says to him, follow me. Follow me. He said to another, follow me. Well, here here is Jesus extending an invitation to someone. He didn't do this to everyone, mind you. He didn't, he didn't uh, invite everyone to, to come near and follow him in the sense that people like the 12 and Peter, James, and John followed Christ. There was a limited number of people who were given kind of that inner circle status with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it seems that this man, this man in Luke 9, 59 and 60, it seems that this man is being drawn in especially close to Jesus. He's been given An amazing opportunity here. The Son of God is extending an open invitation. Follow me. Jesus has something special in mind for this man. He wants to teach him. He wants to use him in a special manner. What an opportunity that this man has. Think of someone, think of someone you know right now today. Someone that, uh, that you know of that you admire. Someone that maybe you don't even know personally. But you know of them. You've, you've read their books. Or you've seen them on television. Or you've, you've heard them on the radio. Or you've, you've read about them uh, uh, in some journal, a periodical of some kind. Think of someone you know who it would, meet, it would mean the world for you to meet them. It would mean the world for you right now to sit down with that person to shake their hand, to be in their presence. Maybe it's someone who is in your field of study or, or in, a, in a hobby that you love or they play a sport that you love to play or they, they work in the same line of work as you. 
or they have the same similar kinds of interests as you do someone out there whom you would just love to shake their hand and meet them and sit down for lunch and pick their brain now imagine that you do meet them your paths cross and there they are right in front of you there he is there she is your hero one of your heroes standing right in front of you now imagine they say to you hey follow me follow me I will teach you everything I know I will make you my apprentice I will give you all of the knowledge and the wisdom that I have I will pave the way for you to achieve all of the success that I've achieved and maybe even more so but I have just one request one request you need to follow me right now you have to make a decision right now come with me now or I will rescind my offer Do you go? Do you go with them? Do you go with your hero? The person you admire? The person you've been waiting to meet? Who has all the knowledge and the keys and the style and the substance and, and everything you've been hoping to glean from? Do you go or do you stay? Do you hesitate? Do you waver? Jesus gives this man in Luke 9:59 he gives him the opportunity of a lifetime follow me Jesus invites and what does the man do he hesitates he wavers he doesn't say no he doesn't say no but he doesn't say yes either something is holding him back and he says as much at the end of verse 59 but he said to Jesus lord let me first go and bury my father let me first go and bury my father it's a strange statement uh, for 21st century ears um, it's likely that the father was not dead as a matter of fact though it seems like he is uh, in an English reading of it um, but it's very unlikely that the father was dead it's possible it's possible we'll get to that possibility in just a moment unlikely though why because in in first century Jewish custom when someone died you buried them and you buried them quickly you buried them the same day as a matter of fact and so it's very it, the odds are incredibly slim that uh, that Jesus caught this man on the same day that his father died and the man was just like hey hold on I gotta just bury my father hold on let me dig the grave and then I'll come that's very unlikely so that's probably not what was happening more probably to the point was that this man was saying to Jesus Lord look my father is old he's getting older in years he's nearing the time of his death I've been caring for him I've been watching over my family would you please give me in just a little bit more time before my father dies and then when he's died and when I've buried him and done what is proper and what is right then then I will come and I will follow you I'll take up you I'll take you up on that offer well the man's request to wait until the death of his father it's a little bit maybe of a strange one in our ears but in the first century Jewish culture it would have been a very very understandable request for two reasons number one again in Jewish culture and custom to care for aging family and to conduct a proper burial of one's family members particularly one's father well that was at the height of social 
acceptability and expectation. You took care of dad. You properly buried your father and showed him honor and showed him respect if you were a good first century Jewish male. And not only that, that's the first reason, social propriety, social acceptance, social expectation. But a second reason is your dad had some money. Your dad had some money. And you were a son. And as a son in first century Jewish culture, you were entitled to the inheritance. And if you were the firstborn son, maybe this man was, we don't know. If you were the firstborn son, you were entitled to a double portion of the inheritance. So when this man says, hold on, Jesus, I've got to bury my father. Wait for me to do that, and then I'll come follow you. When this man gives this excuse, this hesitation, this wavering to Jesus, everyone around listening in on the conversation is going, oh, yeah, of course. Of course. He's got to do what's right in, in the eyes of the community and in the family. And Jesus, you've got to give this man an opportunity to get his inheritance. Maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll pay his own way as he becomes a disciple. Maybe he'll kind of finance his own uh, missions endeavors. But Jesus, give him some time to get his affairs in order. And then when he's ready, when all things are lined up perfectly, then he can go. In the ancient world, a man would structure his entire life around the one issue of his father's imminent passing and the inheritance that he would receive. You might think that a little bit strange in the ancient world, but don't think that we don't do the same. Our modern world is not much more different than that. We too have cultural incentives that often cause us to alter the course of our lives. We have cultural carrots that are dangled before us that many people reach out to grasp and will do anything to get them. It's often remarkable, actually, how little, how little our lives are determined by God's call and how much our lives are determined by the carrots that are in front of us from our world. Think about it. Think about people who... um, Use the example of people who move or relocate. Think about people who, uh, or you, maybe you've moved and relocated before. Think about the times that you've moved and relocated. You've moved across the country, or you've changed cities, or you've changed counties, changed states, okay? Think about when you've moved, or think about others who have moved or relocated at any given time. When was the last time you heard someone say to you, we moved because we sensed that God was calling us to move. Have you ever heard someone say that? We sensed that God was calling us into this new community, and so we moved. Have you ever heard someone say that? Maybe, probably not. But I bet you have heard this. We moved because I was offered a promotion and a raise, so we moved. Oh, okay. I bet you've heard this. We moved because the taxes were so much lower where we moved. Oh, okay. We moved because it it, it just, you know what? There were the right schools. uh, The standard of living was lower. On and on and on. You can fill in the blank here. We moved for cultural carrots and incentives. Right? How often do people move strictly, strictly for financial reasons alone? I would argue the answer is often. Time and again, people pick up and move due to financial and economic incentives. Now, is that a bad thing? Am I I criticizing that? No, I'm not criticizing that today. I'm not here suggesting that relocation because of financial reasons is a bad thing. But here's what I am suggesting. If you pick up your life and move or relocate solely 
for a few dollars or solely for lower taxes, if money is your only factor in your decision-making process, then I suggest to you that you are not making decisions as God would want you to make them. In Luke 9, Jesus is asking this man to relocate in such a way that it will cost him. It won't be an incentive. It'll cost you to move here. It'll cost you to follow me. It'll cost you social and cultural acceptability and expectation as you fail to bury your father. It'll cost you perhaps your inheritance as you leave the family, uproot yourself, and follow me to where I am going. It'll cost you. It won't be a financial carrot. It'll be financial ruin perhaps. Yet the wise decision in Luke 9 in that moment for this man's life was to take a financial loss and do what God called him to do. Take a financial loss and go and do what God is calling you to do. Whew. But I, I like the taxes in Arizona. I mean, I love the tax base. It's so much less than Orange County. Oh, folks, when we make decisions um, just based on money, is it a factor? You bet it's a factor. Is it the only factor? Are you kidding? Of course not. Of course not. Now, I'm talking about moving and relocating. That's just one example. How about when you're thinking of buying or renting a home? How about when you're thinking about buying or renting a uh, buying or leasing a car? How about when you're thinking about what school, what education you're going to go to, whether you're going to go to college or graduate school? How about when you're thinking about a new job that you're about to take? How about when you're thinking about quitting or retiring from a job that you already have? All of these kinds of major life decisions, so often we filter them through one thing and one thing only. How much is it going to cost me? And if it's a financial benefit, do it. If it's a financial loss, don't do it. Jesus is saying, wait, wait a minute. Yes, economics are part of the equation, but then, you know, there's a whole lot, there's one other thing called, what is God asking me to do? What is God asking me to do? If God asks me to uproot and move, and I look at him and say, yeah, but the taxes are higher over there. Now, who am I? What am I saying? It may well be that the calling of God and the financial incentives all align. It may be, but they don't always align. And in Luke 9, they did not align. Jesus asked this man to take a financial loss, a short-term loss for long-term gain, spiritual gain. What is Jesus asking of you today? What is he asking you to give up and lose physically for long-term spiritual gain? The man in Luke 9 heard the Lord calling on line 1, but he hesitated, he wavered, and Jesus rebuked him for it. And look what he said. He says in verse 60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. The man said, Jesus, I'll come. Uh, it's not a yes, it's not a no, it, I'll come, but let me bury my dad first. Jesus says, hey, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury their own dead. The word let there in Greek, afia, uh, excuse me, afiemai. Aphiemi, excuse me, aphiemi in Greek is a very peculiar Greek word. It has a wide range of meaning. Aphiemi. It can define, it can be defined simply as to let or allow the dead to bury their own dead. Kind of like a casual, hey, let the dead bury the dead. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. Or it can be used a bit more sharply, a bit more of a sting to it. It can mean, hey, leave, leave behind the dead. Leave behind the dead to bury their own dead. 
forsake them, abandon them, let, leave them behind, leave them in the wake. It's difficult to know which meaning Jesus has in mind here. It could be either one. But let's not just look at the word let there. Let's look at the whole phrase. Let the dead bury their own dead. What does that mean? Let the dead bury their own dead? Well, there's three options for that one. The first is, is that uh, Jesus could be referring to this as just a hyperbole. A hyperbole, right? An exaggerated statement where Jesus makes a statement and, of course, everyone understands him to simply be making an exaggeration. Let the dead bury their own dead. That's an impossibility. Hyperbole is often kind of something that's impossible. You know, a camel going through the eye of a needle would be a hyperbole, an exaggerated statement, an impossibility. Jesus could simply be making a a hyperbolic statement. Let the dead bury their own dead. A second option, he could be making a figurative statement where he's uh, using this statement as a figure of speech for something else. And he'll be inserting, his, in his meaning, he'll be inserting certain words here that you'll have to decipher. Something like this. Let the, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. In other words, Jesus would be telling the man, look, Hey, you stay focused on the kingdom of God. Let all those who are not focused on it, let all those who do not believe in me or in my kingdom, let all those people bury those who have physically died. So he could be saying it figuratively. And finally, he could be saying it proverbially. He could be making an idiom, kind of a, a saying of the day in which the phrase would have been understood to mean something like, look, the matter that you're speaking of is not the real issue. Or the matter in question is not the real issue. Either way, whether he's speaking hyperbolically, whether he's speaking figuratively, whether he's speaking proverbially, either way, Jesus' point is indelibly clear. He is saying this, nothing, Nothing is more important than preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Amen? Nothing, Jesus is saying, nothing is more important than preaching, than sharing, than telling others of the kingdom of God. Nothing. Not financial gain. Nothing. Not familial obligations, nothing. Not social or cultural pressures, nothing is more important than devoting your life to sharing with others about the eternal life-saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To those of you listening this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ in faith, if you do not know that by faith in Christ you can have your sins forgiven, And you can be given the gift of everlasting life in heaven with God forever. If you don't know that today, know that nothing is more important than for you to consider believing Jesus for that gift. That is the single most important thing you can do in this life. If you have questions about that, I encourage you to talk to me. Who or what are we putting before Jesus? It must be moved out of the way if you were to become a disciple of Christ. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. I don't care about social pressures and expectations, Jesus says. I don't care about your inheritance. I don't care about money. I don't care about the whims of the culture. You stay focused on the kingdom of God. Period. This man wavered. He heard the call of God and he hesitated. Well, one final, one final call. Verse 61. And another also said to Jesus, verse 61, Lord, I will follow you. I will, I will follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having his hand having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here the excuse is far less weighty, isn't it? 
I mean, it's far more and far less time consuming (laughs) than the previous story. The previous story, the man was saying, Jesus, look, I I can't say yes yet. I'm not saying no. Just give me, give me some time. Let my, let my father die. I'll bury him and then I'll come and I'll even maybe finance my own trip. That was a seemingly good excuse in the eyes of the culture. They thought, yeah, Jesus, let him do that. That's, that's kosher. Here, the excuse that the man offers is far less weighty than that, far less time-consuming. It's pretty much just a a blip, a, a moment, maybe an hour of time. Jesus, I will come. I will follow you. But first, just let me go back to my house and say goodbye to them. We don't know if this man had a wife and children or maybe he was a very young man and he just had parents back at the house. We're not sure of the circumstances. In any event, he had family back at his home and he was saying, Lord, please, just let me go back and, and, and kiss my family goodbye. All the man wants to do is go home and say goodbye to his family. An hour's worth, maybe 30 minutes. But again, for the third time now, third time, Jesus offers a rebuke to a potential disciple whose heart is not ready to follow. Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Fit for the kingdom of God. That can be a little scary in our uh, English Bible reading of it. Um, But don't divorce what you just read from the context of what we're reading as a whole. We're reading about discipleship. We're reading about following Christ. Not about coming to salvation in Christ. We're, we're reading about those who choose to follow him after having come, coming, come to faith in Christ. So let it be duly noted that we're talking about discipleship here. Becoming a disciple, not becoming a believer, which will separate the two. A believer is someone who, again, who trusts Jesus for everlasting life. You're a Christian. You're a believer when the moment you believe in Jesus as your Savior. A disciple, though, is someone who goes much further, who desires to commit their whole heart and mind and life and all that they are to following Jesus wherever he goes and to whatever he calls. And when Jesus says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God, Jesus is not saying, he's not saying that the man's desire to go home and kiss his family is an indication that he's not saved. That is not what Jesus is saying. That would be absurd. We should not have a reading like that of Luke 9, verse 62. Jesus is not saying that this man is unregenerate because he wants to go back and and give his family a hug. Jesus instead is suggesting that this man's first instincts to turn home is not compatible with the instincts of a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is suggesting, I'll say it again, that the man's first instincts to turn home back home is not compatible with the instincts of a disciple of Jesus. That's a hard one to swallow. I don't know about you. I feel like I would be this man. Maybe you do too. I feel like if Jesus were here today and he said, Neil, follow me. Right now, wherever I go, follow me. I would say, Jesus, I'm coming, but let me kiss Casey and the kids. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? I feel like this third man. And yet, when God calls, we often 
Well, first of all, we don't have much time to give an answer sometimes. It's not always the case, but it is often the case that the call of God is right in front of us. There's something right there in the moment. It's right in front of you. And you have a chance to meet the call or to hesitate and think about it for a few moments or to just kind of turn around and and walk away from the call. It's not always the case, but it's often the case that when God calls, you don't have much time to answer. It's right in front of you. And so, I I think the lesson here, I think the lesson here is, before God calls, before God calls, we should diligently consider what our answer will be. Before God calls, I should be having conversations with Casey and my children. Before he calls, I should have an understanding with my family that, hey, if God calls daddy to do something, children, daddy's going to say yes to what the Lord calls. Honey, if the Lord is tugging upon me to do something and I've to do something right then, right there, standing right in front of someone who is in dire need before me and I'm feeling the call of God to meet that need and it might take moments, but it might take hours, it might take, might take days or weeks of my time or months of my time and attention that I have an understanding, a before the call of God understanding with my wife that if God calls I'm going to say yes. If we're not ready to answer the call of God, it will often pass us by. And if we repeatedly are not ready to answer the call of God, we begin to get less calls. And if we're never receiving any call from God, any tug on our heart, any prompting of the Holy Spirit, to do something in his name then it's probably because we've said no time and time and time again and i'm not suggesting that means that god's going to call you tomorrow to uh, to <laughs> to pick up and and uh, move to the Middle East and, and minister to Christian refugees on the outlying areas of Iraq. I'm not suggesting that that's going to be God's call tomorrow. And I'm not suggesting that there's going to be an opportunity before you that says, hey, here, hop on this plane right now. We're going right now to minister to those refugees. That's probably not going to happen tomorrow to you. It's probably going to look a whole lot different than that. It could be that, but it's probably going to be a whole lot different. It's probably, probably going to come in a lot more subtle, a lot more quiet ways. It's going to come in the form of a homeless person before you. It's going to come in the form of, of a family in need, and you are duly aware of that need, and you know that God is calling you to help them. It's probably going to be coming in the form of someone who needs help, who needs counsel, who needs love, who needs support, and they're right in front of you, and you know they need it. And you think to yourself, I know, but I've got to get home for dinner, and I've got uh, the ball games on tonight, and uh, man, I, you know, I've, I've got obligations, familial obligations. I, I've got a dinner to go to, cultural obligations. People are counting on me. My wife, my husband, my children, they're counting on me. Before God calls, the conversations with our family, the conversations with our spouse, the conversations with our children, before God calls, we should have an understanding within our family that we want to say yes to the call of God, even when it means social ridicule, even when it means we don't meet social expectations, even when it means the husband or the wife at the end of the day is going to be upset because we missed an appointment or we missed dinner or we missed fill in the blank here, the soccer game. 
that there would be an understanding among our family that we can say yes and for it not to have ramifications at home, that we can say yes to meeting needs in the name of Jesus whenever and wherever they come, that we will go wherever Jesus is going each moment of our day and let it be understood within our family that we would celebrate that, that your spouse would cheer you on for that, that your kids would wait for you when you got home and ask, how did it go? Lord's on line one. The line is blinking. You going to pick up the call? Are you prepared to answer whatever the call may be? Have you prepared your family for how you're going to answer? Or are you a little too comfortable in that chair? You've got your daily agenda set. It can't be changed. It can't be interrupted. You have your excuses. The Lord is on line one. I'm encouraging you to pick up the phone and do precisely what he asks you to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to be disciples of you, Lord Jesus. And yet we read in Luke 9 how to become a disciple And it scares us. It absolutely scares us. Because God, you are calling us to throw off everything when you call. Throw it all off. Social, cultural expectations, obligations. Expectations of our employer, maybe. Expectations of our spouse and our kids, our family. Lord, we are scared not to keep to the agenda. We're scared of disrupting the routine. The unknown is, is, uh, is hard, Lord. And we, we're inclined, our instincts are to make excuses. But Lord, you've shown us now three stories of what not to do. And you've told us what to do. Holy Spirit, would you help us now to make the right changes that we would answer your call when it comes. In Jesus' name, amen.